Just to remind you, we've been in this Balaam narrative uh, from chapters 22 through halfway through chapter 25, where basically the Moabite king uh, Balak tries to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel, but God overrules it and makes him bless them uh, several times. And so the I gave you an overview uh, a few weeks ago, and then we've been looking at the different oracles. Uh, the, there's four total. And tonight we are looking at the third oracle here. It's interesting to see that the way that it, it starts is that it says the Spirit of God came upon him. So we know, as I mentioned last week, that we're actually, even though we're dealing with a, basically a pagan shaman, we're actually dealing with the words of God as we deal with Balaam's oracles because God is overriding, God is superintending these speeches in such a way that Balaam actually ends up saying what God wants him to say as opposed to what the king Balak wants him to say as opposed to what even his own evil desires want him to say. So we know that we're, we're dealing with the words of God here. And it's interesting that Balaam's third oracle starts like this. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Because if we remember back to Numbers chapter 22, we remember this fascinating and somewhat bizarre story of Balaam riding on his donkey and an angel of the Lord appears and Balaam is in this narrow area between two walls which I I take to be something like you know the little uh, access ways to the coastline where you might have one person's house on one side and one person's house on another and both of those people have their properties fenced but then there's this narrow little pathway that pedestrians can take to get to the beach or to get to the coast, right? I think basically there's something like this where there's a field on one side with a wall and a field on the other side with a wall and Balaam's on this little access road with his donkey and an angel of the Lord appears at the other end of the path and the donkey stops and is trying to turn out of the way and Balaam gets uh, quite angry and strikes his donkey and then him and the, the donkey talk to one another. And that's the bizarre part. Uh, but, but it comes out that Balaam has just been blind. Balaam couldn't even see what the donkey could see. It says in Numbers 22, verse 31, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. I think the function of that strange little incident in the the Balaam and Balak narrative is that Balak thought that Balaam was a guy who could really see. He thought that he was a guy that was really perceptive and who had an open eye to spiritual things. But that narrative shows us that Balaam is actually more blind than a donkey when it comes to spiritual things. It is not until the Spirit of God comes upon him and opens his eyes to see that Balaam can actually see. Now, that's exactly what does unfold, and the Lord opens Balaam's eyes to see the truth concerning spiritual things and the intended, divinely intended fate 
of the nation of Israel. So here is now Balak, the man whose eye finally now has been opened, though he was blind. And in fact, when the spirit departs from him, he will be blind again and lead the Israelites into sin in Numbers chapter 25. But for the moment, he is Balaam, the man whose eyes, whose eyes opened. And the first thing that Balaam sees, which we could say is from God's perspective, as God has opened his eyes, the first thing that Balaam sees is that Israel is lovely. We could say this is God's perspective, because again, this is the Spirit of God speaking through Balaam. So God is essentially saying, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, and your encampments, O Israel. As we go on in verses 6 and 7, we see a garden metaphor. And so, the sense of this, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, we can read that in, in view of the garden metaphor. Who has planted this garden that is Israel? The Lord. Who tends this garden that is Israel? The Lord. So, like a man prides himself in a garden that he himself has planted, that he himself has cultivated, and goes out and looks at it and feels that it is lovely, that it is uh, uh, beautiful, that it is something enjoyable, so the Lord looks upon Israel, which he has planted, which he has tended, which he has watered, and feels a sense of pride and satisfaction and enjoyment of these people. Now, we know, we know that Israel is not perfect, of course. And in fact, in 25, uh, the very next chapter, we're going to read about some terrible sin. So the Lord is, in, is not blind with respect to their defects, but the Lord sees the effects of his own work, his own handiwork in this nation of Israel, which has been brought out of Egypt, which has been made into a nation, which has been brought into covenant, which has been sustained through the wilderness, planted and watered by him, which is only going to be developed and cultivated further as he brings them into the promised land and sets them on Zion. So the Lord here is rejoicing essentially in the work of His own hands. Now we are driving towards, in the narrative, we are driving towards Joshua 23 and verse 14 eventually, which is a very key verse to understanding actually the whole biblical narrative. Some people think that there are still outstanding promises left to be fulfilled to the uh, ethnic people of Israel, the geopolitical nation of Israel. But what Joshua tells us as he's about to die, he says in Joshua 23 verse 14, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth, which is a euphemism for dying. And he says, And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them have failed. So Joshua, under um, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, 
gives us the, the divine interpretation that all of God's promises to Israel by that time had been fulfilled. Now, obviously, there were conditional aspects promised to Israel, which, which actually never were fulfilled. And those have to do with the if-then statements that we read throughout the Old Covenant. Uh, we, we look even as we read on in Joshua 24. But just as the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you, and go serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given you. So, there were conditional aspects to the Old Covenant, which the Israelites may have inherited upon the keeping of conditions, but in fact did not inherit because they didn't keep the conditions. And instead of inheriting the, the covenantal blessings, inherited the covenantal curse. Uh, so we, in that sense, we might read things hypothetically promised to Israel, which never actually came to pass to the geopolitical nation. Uh, but there were unconditional things promised, which were promised way back even to Abraham, which God had to fulfill in order to be faithful to His own Word. And this is what Joshua is talking about in Joshua 23, verse 14. Look, the Lord has kept His end of the deal, essentially. You know, not one of the things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you has failed. Right? God has kept His end of the deal. So we're passing out of this uh, conditional phase, if you want to say it that way, and we're going, or sorry, uh, this unconditional phase, and we're going into this conditional phase whereby you're living long in the land and continuing to remain in blessedness and not being cast off by the Lord is conditional upon the terms of the covenant. Alright, so all of that is is background to, to me saying this, just so we don't misunderstand it. I'm just nuancing what I'm about to say. But the focus that we are the focus of the section of narrative that we are in is God unconditionally fulfilling His promises to Israel. Alright? He is going to bring them into the promised land. No matter what Israel does here, the Lord is going to bring them in. Not because they are good, but because He is good. Not because they're faithful, but because He's faithful. Right? Not because they're strong, but because He is strong, etc. That's what's going on in the section of narrative that we're in. He brought them up out of Egypt, and He's going to bring them into the promised land, period. Alright? So, <clears throat> though we, under, we need to understand that, that not everything that God promised Israel was unconditional. There were unconditional aspects. And in that way, God's commitment to do this people good is typological, typological of the way that He cares for us in the new covenant. All right, we think about Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. 
which many of you probably know by heart. He who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Look, He brought you up out of Egypt. He's going to get you into the promised land. Period. He planted you in His garden. Alright? He's going to water you and tend you and preserve you. The Lord's garden is not going to have dead flowers in it. Right? The Lord's garden is not going to wither away because He forgets about it. There are unconditional promises that God has made to His people in Christ Jesus. And the unconditional aspects of the Old Covenant, the the unconditional promises that God made and fulfilled to them are typological. They foreshadow for us those unconditional that unconditional commitment that God has to do us good, irrespective of what we do. Listen, if the Father elected you in eternity past and gave you to the Son and Jesus died for you and bore the wrath that you deserve at the cross and clothed you in His righteousness and if the Spirit took out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and raised you to walk in newness of life. Listen here. Regardless of what you do, let me be super clear about this. Irrespective of what you do, you will be saved. Listen, that's the, that's the scandal of, of grace, okay? Don't hear me saying that if you disown Jesus and don't care a whit about holiness and so on and so forth, that that is um, uh, that, that is okay. Don't hear me saying that you might still be regenerate anyway. That you might still be saved anyway. Even if you repudiate Christ and just live like the devil and don't care and aren't convicted and, and so on and so forth. Don't hear me saying that you probably still are elect and you probably still are regenerate and so on and so forth. Alright? But, but do hear me saying this. We can't, we can't, I don't know. You know who's elect? I don't. <laughs> right? But let me say this. If you are, if Jesus died for you, if Jesus has clothed you in His righteousness, if the Holy Spirit has given you a new heart, right? Which are invisible realities, okay? Listen. None of those people will perish. And people make a mess of their lives. Right? People, people screw up in big ways. But if you are one of God's chosen people, if Christ Jesus shed His blood for you, He propitiated the wrath of God that you deserve. So there is none for you. If you are clothed in Christ's righteousness, then there is... No sin that God sees when He looks at you. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Okay? If the Holy Spirit has brought you to faith in Christ Jesus and given you a new heart, right? You are saved. And you cannot lose that salvation. Even if you make a train wreck of your life. Alright? That is the scandal of free grace. We don't earn it. We don't merit it one whit. 
just like God brought people up out of Egypt who didn't deserve it and, and fed and watered them through the wilderness and brought them into the promised land even though they didn't deserve it, that's what God is doing with us. We don't deserve it. We never deserved it in the beginning. We don't deserve it on our best days. There's not like a week that goes by where it goes, yeah, you know what? It really makes sense that God would save John. Look at what a good guy he is. There's never a week like that. My best week, it's like sheer grace. My worst week is sheer grace. It's sheer grace all the way through. Okay? So there is this unconditional aspect of God's commitment to plant Israel in the promised land, period. And even if they end up whoring with the Moabite women in the next chapter, which in fact they do, God doesn't call off His plan. God fulfills these unconditional promises that He made to Abram concerning His seed, irrespective of what these people do. And listen here, if God has begun a good work in you, hear the if, but if God has begun a good work in you, then listen here, He will carry it through to completion. Period. That's what's going to happen. Alright? So, we are God's garden. And when He looks at us, the people that He has planted and the people that He's watering, guess what? How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, and your encampments, O Israel. We see, that's the first thing that we see the the perspective of Israel here in this passage in Numbers 24. Like I said, verses 6 and 7 develop this garden uh, imagery. And we're going to come back to verse 7 here in a second for the second major point. But I just want to show you in verse 8 is again this present tense, God brings him out of Egypt, which we saw in Numbers 23 and verse 22 also, and I mentioned to you last week, it's present tense here. God brings, not God brought His people out of Egypt, God brings His people out of Egypt. Like I shared with you last Sunday night, I think one commentator was astute to point out that it's, it's this poetic way of saying that's the kind of God that God is. He, when His people are in Egypt, He brings them out. God is a God who brings His people up out of Egypt. This was a one-time historical event when God literally brought His people up out of Egypt. But figuratively speaking, there were so many Egypts throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that God brought His people up and out of, right? And in your lives, how many times can you testify, yes, God has brought me up out of an Egypt. God brings His people up out of Egypt. And He is for them the horns of a wild ox. We see that repeated in in 24 and verse 8. And repetition fulfills what role in literature? Emphasis. Right? God wants us to know. These things were written down for our instruction, the Apostle says. God wants us, when we're reading Numbers, to get the message loud and clear that, look, He is the God the kind of God who brings His people up out of Egypt. And He is for us like the horns of a wild ox. Alright? 
He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces, and pierce them through with his arrows. This is the ultimate victory of God's people, right? He crouched, he lay down like a lion, like a lioness who will rouse him up. Don't mess with God. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Again, this is just God's unconditional fulfillment, or this is God's fulfillment of that unconditional promise that He made to Abram way back in Genesis chapter 12, where He said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Alright, so see here, this is the, this is the main um, thrust of this whole Balaam narrative, really, is God's fulfillment of His unconditional promises, and God overruling this desire to curse. But let's go back to, to verse 7 for our second major point. The first point was, was what? Can you remember? From God's perspective, Israel is lovely, right? Because it's a garden that He planted. And he's watering. And He enjoys His own garden. Okay? So that was the first point. The second point is this. And this is taken from verse 7. God promises a kingdom which is blessed and which will be a blessing. That a kingdom promised is that a kingdom is promised is evident. Just look at look at verse seven here. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. So that's you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that a kingdom is promised here in verse seven. Now, Agag must have been a known contemporary reference because obviously this meant something to the original hearers. You might think, well, I've heard of Agag before. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we read about Agag in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and the Malachite king whom Samuel hacked to pieces. But obviously this reference is not that guy, because that would be anachronistic. That happens many, many years later. So uh, there's probably just another Amalekite king named Agag, now, people might say, well, like some of the scholars say, well, probably not because um, how, you know, how would there be two egg eggs? But I find that just very weak. Like, for example, like you might have heard of like more than one King George or like more than one like King John. And in fact, if you look at the, the dynasties of um, many nations, there's often repetitive names, right? So it's it's very possible that this is just a personal pronoun, which was an Amalekite name that came up in this generation. And then perhaps he was a guy that even was the guy in 1 Samuel 15 was named after. So there may have just been a known king named Agag. Perhaps he was actually one of the strongest kings in the Canaanite area. And this is a statement here that even, even Agag is going to bow before the people of Israel and that the kingdom of Israel is going to be stronger than this particular guy. Agag. Some commentators hypothesize rather that rather than being a personal name, that it's actually a, a, a title, like the Egyptian title Pharaoh. And so all of the Amalekite kings are Agag, just like all of the Egyptian kings are Pharaoh. And so when we when we read in 1 Samuel 15 that Agag was brought 
before Samuel. It would be like reading Pharaoh was brought before Samuel and Agag is just the title of the king. In any case, the implication is clear. Whoever Agag is and whatever Agag is, there is a strong and exalted kingdom promised. Obviously, this Agag wasn't known to be weak and minuscule. Otherwise, his kingdom will be stronger. means nothing, really. So obviously, the implication here is that Agag was strong, but this kingdom that is promised in Numbers 24, verse 7, will be even stronger. Now, that's clear. That half of the verse is pretty straightforward. But the question arises, who is referred to when it says his in the first half of the verse? It's not super clear, either in English or Hebrew, who is the his. Because we might say, we might say okay, let's go back to five. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Um, so there's this speaking about Israel in verse 5. Then we go like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. That mention of the Lord in verse 6 kind of, kind of makes things a little more ambiguous. So, so when it says, now water shall flow from his buckets, are we talking about Israel's buckets, Jacob's buckets? Or are we talking about the Lord's buckets? You see how that's not super clear from the grammar here. All right? Commentators are divided on this. Is this God's water and God's seed in the first half of verse 7? Or is this Israel's water and Israel's seed in the first half of verse 7? Let me give you what I think is the best way to take it. it. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think you'll agree once I explain it. I th- here's what I think is the best way to take this. If we go back to Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, this is what we read. God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your... Our, our ESV says offspring, but you know what the word is? Seed. It's the same Hebrew word. All right? I will multiply your seed, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, or in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay. Back to Numbers 24 with that promise in mind. In Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18, Abraham is promised seed who possessed the gate of their enemies and who blessed the earth. Those are the three promised things. Now Numbers 24 and verse 7 contains all three of those things. Seed. There will be a seed of Israel, which is implicitly the seed of Abraham, right? Because it's Abraham 
Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So the seed of Israel is Abraham's seed. So if God promised Abraham a seed, then if we, if we take the seed here in Numbers 24 as being Israel's seed, what we see is essentially Abraham's seed. Israel's seed is Abraham's seed. Just like if my kids have kids, they're, they're my kid's seed and my seed. Right? So, if we take the his as Israel's, Israel's seed shall be in many waters. First of all, this implies that there will be a seed. The Abrahamic line will not end. There will be a seed, a future seed. And they will be cared for in the future. Just like God has planted the, these people beside waters now, at the time of this writing, so there will be a seed. And where will the seed be? In the desert? No, the seed will also be in many waters. Right? So there will be a seed that will be continually cared for. Now, water shall flow from his buckets. Again, if we take this as Israel, water shall flow from his buckets. To whom? Presumably the nations, right? It doesn't say water shall flow into his buckets. It says water will flow out from his buckets. So presumably water will flow from Israel's buckets to those who are not Israel. Which sounds a lot like blessing the nations. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then... In Genesis 22, 18, or 17, Abraham was promised that his seed would possess the gates of his enemies. Well, this sounds a lot like a kingdom, doesn't it? And a conquering kingdom. So what we actually see, I think, in Numbers 24, verse 7, is a very direct allusion to the three things promised to Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 22. There will be a seed who will be blessed, who will also be a blessing, and who will be a king who captures the gate of his enemies. Now, who is this seed? Come on, somebody, help me out. Jesus. Right? This is, this is in other words, a messianic prophecy. Just like Genesis 22 itself is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, so there is... In Numbers 24, obviously, just a reiteration, essentially, of the same promises. That, that Israel's seed will bless the earth and possess the gates of his enemies. This verse, I think, is best taken to be a messianic prophecy, then. A prophecy about the Messiah. A prophecy of the kingdom of Christ. Under whom... Abraham's seed and Israel's seed are both blessed and being a blessing. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here we are now in the 21st century, living under Christ's reign. Now, 
is it more or less glorious than the ancient Amalekite king Agag's kingdom? More, right? Right? I'm throwing you guys easy ones tonight. Christ's kingdom is more exalted than Agag's, isn't it? It's higher than Agag's. At the time, here was these pilgrim people about to go in and go to war with the mighty king Agag. But here we are so many years later, we're like, yeah, obviously, his kingdom is higher than Agag's. And his kingdom is more exalted than Agag's, right? And what did Jesus say about the gates of his enemies? I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So here is this king, Jesus, more exalted than Agag, advancing against his enemies. And his enemies will not stand in his way, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. And Jesus will possess the gates of his enemies. And we are in many waters, aren't we? In other words, are we, are we, have we been neglected that God cared for Israel and planted them by waters, but here we are in a less privileged estate? No, of course not. And, and we, see, we see things fulfilled to us spiritually, which were fulfilled to the Israelites literally and temporally. Just as they were literally brought into a land with giant grapes. A land flowing with milk and honey. So we are spiritually brought into a land flowing with milk and honey. With giant spiritual grapes, if you will. Which reminds me of a funny story. You want to hear it or not? There was a couple who invited us over for dinner. uh, A Christian couple up in Canada. And I, unfortunately, I couldn't go. I had to work. So so Mel went and... uh, a couple of our other friends went. And then I saw the man a couple days later who had invited us over to his house for food. And I said, um, I said, oh yeah, sorry, I couldn't make it the other night. I had to work. And he said, he said, um, yeah, he said, it would have been nice if you could have been there. We had a, a wonderful feast. And I said, yeah, I heard, you know, you had, the, you had some mashed potatoes and steak and whatever it was. And, he got super awkward and really serious and said, oh, I was talking about spiritual food. <laughs> so it was just a, just a, it was a humorous situation. But, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, we have been planted in a land flowing with milk and honey. In a, maybe, not, maybe not a literal sense, in the, in, in the sense that like, you, know, you live beside a freshwater lake or something like that, but, but in a very real way. Aren't we, haven't we been planted among many waters? Aren't we Abraham's seed, Israel's seed in many waters? Just what this told us? Living under a king who is higher and more exalted than Agag. We come and we find that we have a land flowing with milk and honey. Every Sunday as we open God's word together. As we sing and as, as we hear the the reading of God's word as we partake of the communion table. Aren't we truly by many waters? Right? And here's the thing. Water is flowing from our buckets. In John chapter 7, 
37 to 39, we read this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice that it didn't say into his heart will flow rivers of living water, but out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There is a promise that having received the Spirit that we will minister to others in the power of the Spirit. And that is compared to water flowing from us, from the lips of Jesus in John chapter 7. Now, obviously, we don't have time to expound even the big picture of Ezekiel. But let me just say the vision that Ezekiel sees of a a new temple is not a physical, literal temple that is going to be rebuilt one day. But it's actually the church who is figuratively and symbolically being built together into a dwelling place for the Lord. Okay? And in Ezekiel 47, he's still seeing this vision of the temple. And in verse 2, we read this. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Rushing out or trickling out? Trickling out. Okay? Going eastward, going on eastward, with a measuring line in his hand. By by the way, guys, I have to remind you about this. Remember the tabernacle faced east? Right? And the, the Adam and Eve were kicked out east of Eden. Right? And it's moving westward that we move back into God's special presence, the sim- symbolism. Okay? So going on eastward, so are we moving towards God's special presence or away from God's special presence? Away from. Towards whom then? Unbelievers. The lost world, right? Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. So we go from a trickle to ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand. I'm in Ezekiel 47 and verse 4. And led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in. A river that could not be passed through. So... Here we are. Okay, God promised to Abraham that he would have a seed, first of all, that there would be a seed, and that he would bless that seed, and that that seed would possess the gate of his enemies, and in that seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now here we are. Abraham's seed, Israel's seed, living under a king who is more exalted than Agag, Right? Who 
is going to possess the gate of his enemies. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We are in many waters. Right? And the way that scripture puts it is that water is flowing out of our buckets. Right? Just as Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, right? We go in the power of the Spirit to irrigate and to water the nations. And it is actually by these means that Jesus' kingdom continues to advance and his church continues to be built, right? So there's this Jesus, the primary referent as Abraham's seed, but in him, through him, us also as citizens of his kingdom, right? So Genesis 22 is wonderfully reiterated in Numbers 24 in verse 7, and then it is fulfilled in and through Christ Jesus, and by extension, us as we live in Christ's kingdom, his glorious kingdom, planted by many waters, right? Blessed and to be a blessing. This is what God sovereignly overrules Balaam's wicked intentions and Balak's wicked intentions to reiterate. The same thing he had said to Abraham so long ago. He overrules Balaam to reiterate these promises that there will be a great king and that that kingdom will be blessed and that that kingdom will be a blessing. That water shall flow out eastward towards the nations from His temple. That whoever believes in Jesus out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. What a glorious king, what a glorious kingdom, what a glorious privilege we have to be Christ's And because we are Christ's, Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise.